last week we were exploring the role of impermanence in the Buddha's teachings and how opening more fully to the truth of change in relation to every aspect of our lives is really the key to freedom. But in many ways, this understanding runs completely counter to our unconscious and deeply conditioned desire for stability, for reliability, for predictability, for controllability. So for most of us, accepting the reality of impermanence is a gradual process. And it's one that we can train in. We can train in reducing our instinctive fear of change. And the Buddha recognized that this fear of change is one of the major obstacles to deepening wisdom and compassion. So I've been reflecting on the story of the four heavenly messengers. As you know, many of you in the legend of the Buddha's life, what propelled him to leave the stability and the comfort of the palace was his encounter with what are traditionally known as the heavenly messengers. These four archetypal figures who acted as a wake-up call for the Buddha to be. And these four are the sick person, the aged person, the dying person, and the contemplative, the spiritual practitioner. And according to the legend, it was seeing the inevitability of his own vulnerability to aging and sickness and death that was the wake-up call that led the prince to become a contemplative and to leave the palace in search of a more meaningful life. And ultimately, that led to the Buddha's complete awakening, complete freedom from all forms of ignorance and delusion. So perhaps as a result of his meetings with those heavenly messengers, the Buddha recommended a practice that I touched into briefly last week, the practice known as the five subjects for frequent recollection. That invitation to reflect every day on the truth of change, of impermanence of our own mortality. So just as a reminder, here are those verses again from Thich Nhat Hanh's translation. And as you, some of you heard these last week, some of you it might be new, but even if you heard them last week, just notice when you hear them again now, if there's any difference in your response this time. So the reflections are, I'm of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I'm of the nature to have ill health. There's no way to escape having ill health. I'm of the nature to die. There's no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. So this evening, I'd like to go a little bit further with our exploration of this practice to get beyond perhaps any more surface level reaction that might 
want to turn away from these truths as being disturbing or depressing and instead access the deeper wisdom that can be such a powerful antidote to fear of all kinds. Now, in ordinary life, fear is usually seen as a debilitating emotion that we need to avoid at all costs. Don't even go there. Okay? Or if it does come up, we want to try and get rid of it as quickly as possible. But in the Buddha's teachings, the dismay and the anxiety that we usually feel in response to our own vulnerability, our own mortality, can be used positively to strengthen the motivation to free ourselves from this whole catastrophe. And the Pali word that's used to describe this motivation is samvega. Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, which is usually translated as spiritual urgency. Spiritual urgency. I don't know, have any of you heard that term before? No, most uh, one or two people. Yeah, it's not that common. I first heard of this term early on in my own meditation when I sat a few retreats with Burmese monks who taught in the tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw. And in that context, Sam Vega was often trans talked about as the need to practice as if, quote, our hair was on fire, which is actually a line from the suttas. But you know, there's a certain intensity there that uh, unfortunately it encouraged a driven kind of striving for most of us, including me, that wasn't healthy or sustainable. So later on, I was relieved to learn that the word Samvega has a more nuanced range of meanings. Still not necessarily pleasant, but ultimately intended to help us make sense of our existential confusion. And I also discovered that Samvega needs to be balanced by its counterpoint quality, which is Pasada, usually translated as calm confidence. That's partly why in the meditation just before, I was really emphasizing this quality of calm, of stillness, of tranquility. So Samvega and Pasada work together to make sure our efforts are balanced in service of the middle way. So I'll come back to Pasada later, but first I'd like to focus a little bit more on Samvega. This is how the American scholar monk Tanasaro Bhikkhu describes Samvega. He says, Samvega was what the young Prince Siddhartha felt on his first exposure to aging, illness, and death. It's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range, at least three clusters of feelings at once. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that come with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. This is a cluster of feelings that we've all experienced at one time or another in the process of growing up. But he says, I don't know of a single English term that adequately covers all three. It will be useful to have such a term, 
And maybe that's reason enough to simply adopt the word samvega into our language. So I wonder if that feels true for any of you, whether in the process of growing up, you did have some experience of that sort of alienation or uh, dismay. Anybody recognize any of that at some point? Uh, whether or not you called it Samvega at the time, my guess is that most people get interested in meditation and the Buddha's teachings out of some sense that there might be a more meaningful way to live our lives. And this feeling can re-emerge in times of crisis where it can actually be a useful resource if we understand how to relate to it in a skillful way. So as I was exploring these themes this week, I found some writings by a Soto Zen priest called Domio Burke. She's the founder and teacher of a Zen community in Portland, Oregon. And she suggests that we can use our current situation to investigate when she says, when all the things we usually count on are taken away or put into a state of great uncertainty, what do we do? Is there a way to think of our existence that preserves some sense of meaning and order? What can we rely on for strength and inspiration when the ground beneath our feet is shifting constantly? When impermanence and death seem close at hand, these are ideal times for Buddhist practice. Not because we're scared or in pain and practicing will help us cope, although that may be the case. Instead, our practice comes alive when we're face to face with the reality of impermanence, because that's when we're actually awake. The truth of impermanence has been there all along, but when things are peaceful and stable, we get all complacent and operate with the assumption we've got plenty of time and that the conditional things we rely on for happiness will last. When we're complacent, it's hard to practice with a sense of dedication and urgency that's required for real transformation and insight. Alternatively, when the apparent solidity of our lives starts to seem fragile or ephemeral, we may be inspired to explore the great matter of life and death as if our lives depended on it. So in New Zealand, I think you'll soon be moving from level four to level three restrictions. And in some ways, for some of you, perhaps moving towards more normal life. And it could be tempting to breathe a big sigh of relief and metaphorically go back to sleep. Or as Domio puts it, get complacent again. Okay, we're all, we're, it's all good now. And we can assume we've got plenty of time, losing that sense of dedication and urgency that's required for real transformation. So in saying this, it's not that I'm suggesting that therefore you, we all should be trying to stay in a state of hyper alertness and anxiety and braced for crisis, but just to notice if there is any tendency to revert to our old strategies for trying to get solidity under our feet again strategies as I spoke of last week of trying to fix the flux and instead see if we can stay open to these new ways of being with our anxiety and fear of impermanence so that they do become resources that deepen our practice. 
And it's not easy to do this because not only does it challenge our own individual fears, but also the collective fears of the society around us, even what in some ways are pretty deep social taboos, the society-wide avoidance of impermanence and death. So some of you may have seen the essay by the US writer Charles Eisenstein called The Coronation. And there's a section of that essay where he talks about what he calls the war on death. And this is very heightened at the moment. He says, the mantra of safety first comes from a value system that makes survival top priority. And it depreciates other values like fun, adventure, play, and the challenging of limits. The surrounding culture lobbies us relentlessly to live in fear and has constructed systems that embody fear. In them, staying safe is overridingly important. Thus, we have a medical system in which most decisions are based on calculations of risk and in which the worst possible outcome is death. And death marks a physician's ultimate failure. Yet all the while we know that death awaits us regardless. A life saved actually means a death postponed. The ultimate fulfillment of, of civilization's program of control will be to triumph over death itself. But failing that, modern society settles for a facsimile of that triumph, denial rather than conquest. Ours is a society of death denial, from its hiding away of corpses, to its fetish for youthfulness, to its warehousing of old people in nursing homes. Even its obsession with money and property are extensions of the self, and they express the delusion that the impermanent self can be made permanent through its attachments. So I share that quote just to put in context that in trying to turn towards our own impermanence, we're up against a lot. So we want to give ourselves credit for even the slightest willingness to go against mainstream values. And I know some of you have done or are doing Stephen Levine's Year to Live practice, and perhaps some of you have been practicing with the five daily recollections or doing other kinds of work like hospice work. So you know from your own experience that just turning towards the truth that I'm of the nature to die can powerfully heighten our sense of what's important. So quite a few years ago now, I did a one-year foundation training in chaplaincy with the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. And in that program, we did a lot of practice, a lot of imaginative explorations of our own dying process and death. And I also, through volunteer work, got to witness the last stages of life for people in hospice. And it was at first quite confronting for me to realize the truism that for the most part, people die exactly the way they lived. And it made me realize that there's a kind of mythology or even mystique around what happens as people reach the end of their life. 
So in books and movies, we're often shown the deathbed transformational moment where there's some kind of profound catharsis or reconnection or redemption. But in actual reality, most people tend to die the way they lived. So when I first started visiting the hospice, I was quite shocked to realize that most people spent their last days watching daytime TV on massive TV screens that were right over their beds. And a hospice nurse friend of mine told me how many people she nursed died with a remote control in their hands. The TV was the last thing they saw. And as far as I know, none of us are actively dying right now. We're not imminently facing death. But if we can bring wisdom and compassion to our instinctive avoidance now, we have a better chance of being able to navigate the end of our lives with some degree of clarity and kindness. And it helps us to bring, to live with more wisdom and compassion in this moment now. So this is how San Vega or spiritual urgency is steadied by the counterpoint quality of Pasada. So coming back to Tamasaro Bhikkhu again, this is how he defines Pasada. The first step in the solution is symbolized in the Siddhartha story by the prince's reaction to the fourth person he saw on his travels outside of the palace, the wandering forest contemplative. The emotion he felt at this point is termed pasada, another complex of feelings, usually translated as clarity and serene confidence. This is what keeps Sam Vega from turning into despair. In the prince's case, he gained a clear sense of his predicament and the way out of it leading to something beyond aging, illness, and death, and at the same time feeling confident that the way would work. So Pasada then has a quality of faith, but it's not the kind of faith that's based on blind belief or naive hope. Notice that Tanasaro Bhikkhu defines it as clarity and serene confidence. So it is grounded in clear seeing, in insight, in wisdom. So Sam Vega gives us the sense of urgency to do things differently, to step out of our comfort zones, to challenge our fears. And when the heart-mind is no longer clouded by fear, it sees more clearly and a calm confidence can develop. And from that clear seeing, the sense of urgency gets stronger. We're not as willing to compromise our long-term well-being for the sake of short-term comfort. And we also see that we're all in this together. Every one of us is subject to the same processes of aging and illness and death. And so we lose some of our self-centeredness. And Sam Vega turns towards helping others relieve their suffering too. So in this way, we begin to connect with something much bigger than our own small sense of self. And there's a significant shift in the practice at this point. It moves from being motivated by what can I get from my practice to what can I give to it, what can I offer to it. 
What am I bringing to it? And often there's a feeling of deep relief when we realize that the Dharma is working in us and through us, and we actually don't have to micromanage it in quite the same way as we used to. Instead, we can settle back. And really, at this point, the practice is just about getting out of the way, making space for the Dharma understanding, the intuitive wisdom, to do its thing. And this is the quiet confidence of Pasada, trusting that there's something beyond the capacity of our cognitive mind to understand, and that that something is growing in us, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all. So I know that many of you have experienced this balancing of Samvega and Pasada for yourselves because it's one of the many benefits that we can experience on retreat. It takes quite some degree of samvega or ardency to motivate us to go on retreat in the first place. And because in the specialized conditions of a retreat, which are in some ways like a laboratory or an artist's studio, we get to experiment. We get to test ourselves in ways small and large to see what emerges when we're out of our comfort zones. So in that way, being on retreat at times can feel analogous to a kind of a death. We die to our comfort, our habitual ways of being. And the setting compels us to let go of what's not essential. For a few days or weeks or perhaps months at a time, we can live a very simple life, often with the powerful support of nature, the bush, woodlands, or forests. And when we're free from our usual habitual distractions, we're thrown back on our inner resources. And in that crucible, those inner resources get strengthened, which gives rise to the calm and quiet certainty, the confidence of Pasada. So hopefully those kinds of opportunities to be on retreat in places like Temuata and the Forest Refuge will be, available, will be available again before too much longer. But in the meantime, we can find other ways to support the arising of these two wholesome states, Samvega and Pasada. So in service of that, I'd like to close with a few minutes of an invitation just to touch in to a short contemplation of our own mortality, even if it's just an imaginative exercise, we can reflect together, what if? What if I were to die tonight, unexpectedly in my sleep, and there wasn't a tomorrow? Noticing what the body, the heart, the mind do with this suggestion. Stay with any responses that might come up, including the possibility of no response at all. Just for a few minutes now, sitting with that question. What if I were to die tonight and there was no tomorrow?
Thank you for listening. I'd like to take some time now just to hear from any of you, any reflections, any responses, any questions. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.